You're listening to a Dwell Community Church production. If you'd like to check out more resources, visit dwellcc.org. Good evening, everybody. Come on in and grab a seat. Not just any seat, the right seat. Your previously assigned section. Well, we're here again. Praise God for that. Yeah. And we have a new home group joining us. Geiger Berry Home Church, wave your hand. Yeah. That's pretty exciting. Why don't I just get into James? So, yeah, so we are continuing on in the book of James. We're going to be in James chapter 2. And the context here has to do with, this is a book written by Jesus' half-brother, two people that are from a very Jewish background. A lot of the New Testament was written by Paul, and it was two audiences that are from more of a Greek background, uh, not a Jewish background. And so what we've, one of the things we've talked about is the importance of context, understanding who he's talking to, what about, and what are their presuppositions going into this. And what he's talking to them about is what does it look like to live out their faith in a mature way? Christianity is brand new. There's no one who's been a Christian for very long. And so they're trying to figure out what does it look like to take these things that Jesus has taught us and put them into practice in the daily eventualities of our lives. And they're very interested and they want to have an active faith. They want their faith to be expressed in the way that they treat other people. And so James is helping them by explaining what it means to have God in your life and to follow those teachings. And one of the main thrusts of this book and why we chose it for right now is we're living in a time where action is needed, where our culture is really going crazy on a whole bunch of fronts And really, this is an opportunity for Christians to stand up and to bring God's love into this cluster mess of the way people are treating each other. It's not the way that things are supposed to be. People matter. All people matter. And so at the end of chapter 1, which we've studied over the last several weeks, he gives them this, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. I think this is one of the real knocks on Christianity in our culture that's real valid is that there's a lot of talk, but where's the action? Where's the people that are living like Jesus lived, who are loving others the way that Jesus loved others? I think people feel like there's a lot of talk, but there's not a lot of action coming out of the church in our country. And so this topic of spiritual maturity is one that's really relevant to us and for us. And we talked about how it's about the importance of attitude, that as you're encountering various trials, as you're going through hardship, as you're experiencing difficulties, which Christians and non-Christians experience the same, That your thought process about it, whether you're going to take a victim mentality, whether you're going to get bitter, or whether you're going to recognize that as you suffer in this world, 
that that's something that can draw you closer to God and something that can prepare you to help other people who are suffering. Another aspect of this maturity that he's talked about is trusting God. That if God truly is all-powerful, if he truly is all-knowing, that he is able and aware of our suffering and can and will use that suffering in redemptive ways. And that we need to remember that, not just after the fact, but in the midst of that kind of suffering. The other aspect that I think he's really driving at here when it comes to spiritual maturity is that we need to see things from God's perspective. There's a natural way, an easy way that mankind kind of expresses and views the world, and it's a very selfish perspective. We kind of go about on our left to our own devices like we're God and that everybody should serve us, and we're very selfish by nature. But God offers a perspective that we are part of. He agrees that we are valuable, that we are beloved, and that we are wonderful. He says we are fearfully and wonderfully made. But he also points to the fact that so is everyone else. And when you begin to see that others are just as valuable and just as important as you are, and you begin to see the needs that other people have, then that puts a whole new perspective on how we live our lives. So we get to James chapter 2, verses, uh, verse 1, and he says, My brothers, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord, Jesus Christ, with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring dressed in fine clothes, and there are also a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who's wearing fine clothes, and you say, sit here in the good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down by my footstool, you have not, you have not, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? He's saying the way that you treat each other, especially when you come together as the family of God, don't treat people, some people, like they have more value than others. This idea of favoritism is something we're all familiar with. It's one of those things that I was talking about that comes so natural to us. It's so easy to look at one person and say they have more value than someone else over here, but we make those distinctions along superficial lines. Now, his point here really isn't to talk that much about rich and poor. That's just the example that he's using. The point here is that we not show favoritism to different people, that we not value some people over others. Rich and poor was a good way in his culture and in ours. It's a good example of how that works. But his point here is the favoritism issue. How do we view each other? How do we understand each other? How do we value each other? Do we judge each other by how we dress, how we talk, what race we are, what level of education we are, whether we're attractive or an uggo, or political affiliations? Those are all things that are very easy to judge people by, and that you can size them up. All of us know how to size people up very, very quickly, and we kind of do it subconsciously. It comes so easily to us, 
a lot of times we don't even understand or realize that we're doing it. But we do. This is not God's way. This is not the way that God views his creation. And 1 Samuel, God is selecting David to be the king. And the people had selected Saul. And Saul was tall and handsome. And, and, and he stood up and he, he, would, he stood out from a crowd. People looked at him and they were like, now that is a king. And at the time David was chosen, he was sort of a boy. And he was, they said he was ruddy and handsome, but he was kind of a twerp. And God chose David as his representative, as his king, and he had to include this statement. He says, God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. What God is interested in is not what race you are, not what socioeconomic class you are, not how you dress, not how you talk. But what's in your heart? That's what he values above all other things. And that's one of the many things that sets him radically apart from us. I know this from experience. You know, as someone who's been involved in ministry and we do something we call discipleship, which is really just spiritual mentoring and we have the privilege of connecting with different people. I've had the, the, the privilege of connecting with many different people over many different years. And you can only meet with so many people for one-on-one -on -one personal training. And so there's sort of a selection process that you find yourself in when there's a lot of opportunity, but there's not a lot of time. And as a young leader, I remember thinking, you know, I would be looking for the, the strong, charismatic, gifted person you know, I'd be looking for somebody who was impressive. I wanted to spend my time trying to raise up somebody who would be really powerfully used by God. And I thought the way to find that person was by looking at how gifted they were. And I wound up investing in a lot of people who felt like they deserved to be invested in. I remember one specific case, there was a guy, he was, he was tall, he was, he was charismatic, he had a lot of friends, people, he was a natural leader, people wanted to follow him, and I did everything I could to say, you know, I wanted him to walk with God so badly, because I knew how he could be used in such a powerful way in the lives of other people. But what I did was I basically made it way too easy for him. I would go and, you know, we would have our regularly scheduled time and I would go, he was, he was working at a bookstore at the time, so I would go to his bookstore, you know, during his break and, you know, I would study with him and he wouldn't do the reading or he wouldn't do these other things and I would be like, that's okay. You know, I was very, I was very soft because I didn't want to offend him because I understood how he could be used. And it shouldn't have been any shock to me when he took sort of a self-righteous attitude and acted like I was doing him a favor by investing all this time and energy and trying to teach him the Bible. And it wasn't that surprising when he turned out to be a fairly selfish person who really didn't want and or take things seriously spiritually. And that wasn't because he was gifted. There are gifted people who want to be used, but it was in a way kind of a stumbling block for him. Because he saw himself as successful and not really needing any help. 
And so I was judging him by all these external factors. And one of the things you learn as you work through this is you can't, you can't prejudge how spiritual somebody's going to be or necessarily how powerful they're going to be used if they have a heart for God. In fact, a lot of times it's the twerp in the corner who's being real shy and quiet and weird who winds up being an incredible servant and in some cases even an incredible leader for God. God's perspective on people is totally different than ours. This is maybe the most well-known verse in all of the Bible. This is the one you see at all the football games. And we're going to read it, but I don't want you to miss it because you've heard it too much. He says in John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now, I'm sure you are reciting it in your head because if you have one Bible verse memorized, that's what it is. But think about the meaning. God loved everyone so much he came and died for all of us. That is a huge statement about God's perspective on every single human being on the planet. He so loved all people that he saw every single one of us as worth dying for. That concept is not a truth that we let permeate our everyday lives, but we should. That should inform the way that we view one another. Here is someone that God loves so much, he was willing to die for them. Cutting me off in traffic. Taking too long at the checkout line. Annoying me with wanting to ask me questions. Whatever it is, these are incredible beings of incredible and immense value and every human being on the planet has that kind of value. So you can't play favorites as a follower of God because everyone has this high value. In 1 John 3.1, he puts it this way. He says, see how great the love of the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. And such we are. Think about that. A lot of us here are parents. Think about your children and how they are manifest in your heart. What wouldn't you do for your children? This is God saying that's how he feels about everyone he's ever created. That's his heart. That's his attitude. How would you feel if somebody was really, really nice to one of your kids and then for superficial reasons was really dismissive of another? You wouldn't like that person very much. You'd be like, you're not seeing all the great qualities that are in my other kid. If you could see them like I see them, you'd love them both, which is exactly what God is saying in this passage. Another famous passage, Galatians 3.28, says there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. These things that we put so much weight on, so much value, we judge each other by these criteria, he says those are nothing. They're meaningless in the face of eternity. You want to judge somebody by their wrapper? 
That's not God's way, and it's completely missing the true heart and the true value of what it is to be God's creation. God's perspective is we're all worth dying for, and what makes us precious is not how we look or what we do. It's that we're his children. It's built in from the fact that we're his creation. And conditional love isn't love at all. I really struggle with that. I mean, we all really struggle with that, but I struggle with that more than a lot of people. There's something innate within me. Before I was a Christian, before I followed God or even understood the teachings of God, I did not want to love everyone. People who know me and who are in my life will tell you, I have strong opinions and I'm not afraid to share them and I'm not afraid to hurt people's feelings. And that's with the Holy Spirit after 20 years of walking with God. So you can imagine what I was like as a teenager. And my thought as a teenager, the way that I lived my life, honestly, was there were people who I liked. And I just, I don't know why. I I enjoyed them, I was around them, and it made me happy. And I was really nice to those people. And then there were people who I felt were annoying. And I thought, well, the best way to keep them away is to tell them they're annoying. I didn't care. I was just absolutely subjectively saying this person has value and this person has no value. And so I come to Christ and come to understand what I'm talking about to you about this evening. And it was really challenging for me. I remember one of my mentors, one of the guys who discipled me, really challenging me on this. He said, you know, you're so good when you like somebody and you're so dismissive when you don't. And I was like, yeah, I'm honest. Isn't that a virtue? Isn't it good to be honest? You want me to to lie to people and pretend to like them when I don't? You want me to fake it and be fake with people and be nice to everybody when I don't feel like being nice to everyone? It took me a passage to a passage where Jesus said, even a thief loves those who love him. It's easy to love those who you feel loved by, but that is not God's way. God's way is to love everyone, not because of who they are, but because of who he is. And I just remember being skewered by that. I still wrestle with that. There's some people that are just so easy to love and so easy to like. I'm suspicious that I find that because I think it's when I see some of myself in them. I really love that because I just love myself so much. And the people that are different, but I don't know exactly what it is, but there's, you know, this thing that we call chemistry, and that has nothing to do with Christian love, and it is not fake to show love and to show kindness and to be gentle and engaged and caring with people that are hard to love. In fact, I would argue it's not fake. In a lot of ways, it's more real when you choose to love somebody who's difficult to love as opposed to loving someone who's easy to love. So James goes on in our passage in 2 verse 5. He says, listen, my beloved brothers, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom of which he promised and to those who love him? But you dishonor the poor man. 
It's not the, is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? And so what he's doing here, again, is he's not really attacking and creating a rich-poor dynamic. What he's saying is, is you guys are, are judging people by the wrong criteria. The human perspective here is that people who are poor have less value. That's what a lot of people think. That's a lot how they live their lives. Now, they wouldn't admit that they think that, but that's what a lot of people think, and that's how they treat a lot of poor people. They believe that poor people are poor because they're lazy. And you'll hear people say, get a job, and they don't understand the dynamics of what's going on in a, in a, in a culture like that. They think poor people have less to contribute, and they think maybe a poor person should be pitied, but certainly not honored. They're making all these judgments on the basis of superficial external criteria. God's perspective, on the other hand, is that all people, everyone, has the same value. And in fact, poor people tend to have more faith, is what he's saying. Poor people actually know what it is to be have needs and to depend and have to depend. And they are more likely to turn to God and ask him for help than rich people, which is an amazing thing to turn to God and to learn to depend on him. He says poor people are actually more likely to do that. Why are you regarding the rich man as more valuable? And he says poor people who love God are heirs to the kingdom. And a larger reading of scripture, what we see is things like God saying the first will be last and the last will be first. The people who suffer more but are faithful in this life will be rewarded more greatly than those who have an easier time in this life. That these people in the eyes of God are doing even more because they have less to work with. Do we see people that way? In James's cultural context too, what he's talking about when he's talking about do not the rich take you to court, do they blaspheme the name of our Lord, what he's saying is, is that a lot of the rich people were the Pharisees, the religious rulers who killed Jesus and were attacking the faith and persecuting Christians were the wealthy people in Jerusalem. They were the most wealthy people and the most respected people. And he's saying, these guys show up at your Bible study and you're like, oh, sir, please sit here in the front row. And you treat them with favoritism while telling the poor person to sit in the dirt. When in our context, these are the people that are trying to take us out. It shows how deeply rooted and how powerful these superficial judgments that we make are. In the eyes of, the, of human perspective, Rich people have more value. They deserve more respect and they should be treated better. Why? The only thing I can think of is because we're hoping they'll give us stuff. That we think, you know, if we're nice to them, that they will use their power and their influence and their things to make our lives a little bit easier. There's a selfish motive rooted in that. From God's perspective, actually, rich people have a difficult challenge in front of them. He's not saying it's evil to be rich. He's not saying it's sinful to be rich. But money is something that 
can really blind you to your need for God. Comfort is something that can really blind you for your need to God, for God. It's not that money is evil, but the love of money is at the root of all evil, according to the word of God. And so if you're comfortable and you're wealthy, it's actually going to be a challenge for you to learn dependence on God when you have a treasure of wealth to protect yourself. He's saying faith is more difficult for people in this situation because they have more to lose. Are they willing to risk all that they have and give it over to God for his use? Or do they feel like they're privileged in some way and that they have an advantage that they don't want to give up? Again, his point is not to say poor people good, rich people bad. That would be, that would be favoritism in the opposite direction. His point is to say, why are you showing favoritism along such superficial lines? It doesn't make sense. God's perspective is, why should you value someone more because they have more stuff? Now, God has what we call the eternal perspective. God doesn't think in terms of, you know, a year or 10 years or 20 years or 100 years. God thinks in, in terms of eternity. And he's saying, you think this person who has more stuff is somehow more valuable than this person who has no stuff, but all the stuff is going to be destroyed. All the material, all the matter, all the things, all the wealth, all the houses, all the cars, all the clothes, all the jewelry, all the comfort, all of those things that we weigh and put so much weight behind are going to pass away, and there's only going to be one thing left, and that's people. People are the only thing that matters. It's not just that they matter more. It's that in the span of eternity, relationships, love, connecting with each other is all that we take with us into eternity. And so when you evaluate somebody on the basis of what they're wearing and give them more value in the way that you treat them, you're really denying the reality of what God has said is true. And you're treating one of his children with contempt because they have less dust. Even Jesus' enemies admitted that he wasn't biased toward anyone. They approached him and they wanted to test him. But look at what they said in Matthew twenty-two sixteen. He says, and they sent their disciples, meaning the Pharisees sent their disciples to Jesus along with the Herodians. And they said, teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God and truth and defer to no one for you are not partial to any. Jesus was particularly known for not showing favoritism, but also known for showing love and compassion. He didn't treat one person differently from another. He treated them like they were brothers because that's what they were. And I know we can hear a teaching like this and we can say, yeah, 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 be kind to one another, love one another, you know, but don't let that roll off. This isn't a small matter. You know, forming cliques in, in our home groups 
or in our church, like this is something that a lot of people experience. If you've ever been a new person at a church, it can be very uncomfortable and it can feel like it's very difficult to break into a group of people that know each other really well. It's really easy to feel like an outsider. It's really easy to gravitate at your home church toward people who you've known for a long time and not risk an interaction with somebody you've never met before. It's really easy to judge people from those outward appearances, size them up and just say, is this someone who's going to be easy to talk to or hard to talk to? Is this someone who's going to meet my needs or who's going to be expecting me to meet theirs? Valuing people differently because of their status is the ultimate hypocrisy for a Christian. Because all of us have the same value, and that value is Jesus Christ on a cross, God being willing to die for us. And these criteria also are exactly why the Pharisees were blinded to the reality of who Jesus was. You know, it's, it's a little bit more than ironic that these were the religious figures who were expecting a Messiah to show up, who were praying probably daily that God would fulfill the promises of the Old Testament and send the Messiah to rescue the Jewish people from Roman rule. They were looking for that, and they were studying, and they were looking to see who this Messiah would be. And when he showed up, well, he didn't add up. He was a hillbilly from Nazareth, which was a, a, a poor area of Israel. He was from a blue-collar family, a carpenter's son. He had no formal education. He had no stamp of approval. And what they were looking for was a conquering king, a glowing example. What they were looking for was someone who would look like them and act like them. And so when Jesus rolls up with dirty feet and sandals and a common robe and no formal education, they were like, there is no way. The all-powerful creator God of the universe would look like this guy. And all of their superficial judgments led them to the worst possible conclusion. And by the way, all of those same things would have been true of James, Jesus' brother, as well, the author of our book. Jesus warned the Pharisees when he confronted them. In John 7, 24, he says, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment, meaning judge with God's judgment. Don't look at the outer man, but look at people the way God looks at people. And the danger for us here is real. This isn't just an esoteric exercise and and being kind to one another. We are in the middle of a situation that calls for some kindness. What people need right now is love, and we are being polarized and turned against each other into different camps where we're being told we need to favor the people who agree with us, and we need to hate the people who disagree. That's what's happening right now in the people in your lives, in the culture. We're judging people along superficial lines. Do you wear a mask or do you not wear a mask? Are you kidding me? 
We're a little more important than that. We're a little more valuable than that. And to hate somebody because they disagree with you and love somebody because they agree with you about something trivial is to deny the reality of how God has made us. Christians don't get to decide who they love or who they value. We're supposed to love and value all of God's children, the entire human race. It doesn't mean we need to agree, but it means we are forbidden from hating. And 2, verse 8, he says, if, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, which is just like the most important thing in all of the Bible, it's love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. What would happen if you treated everybody the way that you love yourself? Well, everyone would be treated equally by you, wouldn't they? He says, if you do that, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing a sin and you're convicted by the law's transgressors. God's alternative is to look out for people who are different and move toward them. When we come together, are there people who feel uncomfortable? Are we going out of our way to make them feel welcome? Are we moving toward people? In our meetings, are we making sure that people feel valued and included regardless of how many times they've shown up or what they're wearing or how easy they are to talk to? Do we go out of our way to make sure that people don't feel out of place? Or are we treating people like the Pharisees treated people? I want you to think about this the next time you're annoyed by someone who posts something you think is stupid on Facebook. There's a lot of that going on right now. Children of God who are worth dying for are posting things on Facebook and saying things about each other that no one should say. And we're doing it too. We're culpable. We're responsible for how we treat God's children. So the next time someone disagrees with you, the next time someone just seems like they're a worthless idiot, the next time you have that thought in your head, who is this worthless idiot? The answer is someone that Jesus Christ loved so much he died for them. And we have to realize that our actions and the way that we treat people do reveal what we really believe about God and what we really think about it. Look at 1 John 4.20. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that we love, but that the one who loves God should love his brother. Here's the word of God telling us right here. If we have hatred for one another, that reveals that we don't really understand who God is, and we don't really value who God is. And we should remember that. So they have James. Rather than ask for questions through masks and all that, I'll just pray for us, and we'll get outside and spend some time together. 
God, I know that this is something that I struggle with a lot. And I'm guilty a thousand times over of favoring people for some subjective, unimportant reason. And I just pray, God, that you'll move in our hearts and help us during this time to open up and to move towards others and to be a beacon of light, to be an example of your love. And in a time where people are devaluing one another in ways that I've never seen in my lifetime, I pray that you'll help us to shine as your creation and as your children to bring love into the lives of those, especially those who don't know you. Amen. Thanks for listening. This has been a Dwell Community Church production.